Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Percival, take Excalibur. Find a pool of calm water. Throw the sword into it. No. Obey me, Percival. Do it and return. When you cast it in, what did you see? I saw nothing but the wind on the water. My king, I couldn't do it. Excalibur cannot be lost. Other men... Do as I command. One day, a king will come. And the sword will rise again. Back to Conspiranormal, guys. It's your host, Adam Sane. And it's been about three weeks uh, since we've been here last in the studio. And no Luke tonight. And I have Mr. Rob. I'm here. I made Mr. it. Mr. Producer Rob. <laughs> getting slowly, uh, slowly getting the, uh, the studio made for our big transition over there. And uh, we got uh, Walter Bosley coming on tonight. And we're going to talk about, uh, what are we not going to talk about? We're going to talk about his books, uh, Secret Missions 1 and Secret Missions 2. 
And we're going to talk about Knights Templars and the, hopefully the Excalibur Sword and uh, Richard Francis Burton and Lost Cities in the Jungle and all kinds of stuff like that. So looking really forward to it. Um, man, a lot been going on since we, we met last, Rob. Yep. A lot of a lot of new happenings in the past three weeks. Yeah. A lot the shootings galore. Yeah. Uh, first of all. Was hatchetings. Sh- yeah. Hatchetings. Yeah. I'm going to get to that here in a second. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, you know, at the end of the last show, where we got kind of like really serious for about 20 minutes, we talked about the shooting in my hometown of Chattanooga. Not really much to really to go over that, although I do hear that there's, uh, I haven't really paid much attention to it, but apparently the one of the Marines has gotten in trouble for shooting back or something. Have you heard about that, Rob? I've, yeah, I heard just a brief mention on it. I also heard that they're not supposed to carry there. Mm-hmm. And that's more than likely why that was a chosen target. Cause it's right. Right. Well, in a lot of those places, like they, they're not supposed to, they're not supposed to carry, which is, which is something I didn't really know before all this. <laughs> no, Apparently that was the case with uh, the Fort Hood shooting back in 2009. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, then the people can't carry on the, on, on the bases and, you know, it's like it's a military installation. It really doesn't make much yeah, sense. You'd think the more security, the yeah. better. Well, a lot of people, a lot of people are getting, um, are, are, have gotten up in arms about this, man. Uh, I was watching this video the other day. I believe our friend Rocky's going to have this guy on, her, on his show. Uh, but this guy was talking about how people need to get ready and need to go out and not necessarily attack people. But if he said, if he hears of like a, like a terrorist cell somewhere, he's gonna come out shooting and all this kind of stuff. Nice. Yeah, it's like I mean, people are. I I don't really want to say losing their minds because a lot of this is just a reaction, but people are, are people are getting serious. They're getting serious about being armed and they're mm-hmm. getting serious. Well, it's about scary when all this stuff. When you look around and you see just the right pieces in place for some, you know, real catastrophic stuff, and it's right. You know, all, all it takes is the, you know, the right match in the right yeah. area. And... Well, I mean, what, what I what I find interesting and also a little scary is, you know, are we going to end up in a situation? And I think we brought this up when we were on Rocky's show last time, or the, the time before last, when you and I were on there. Um, are we going to end up in a situation where it's kind of like, you know, Weimar area era Germany, like right before the Nazis took over that, and I'm not saying that these people are Nazis. Okay. But I'm just saying like, in, in, you know, in a specific period of time, you know, the Weimar Republic, um, you know, where you had the SA stormtroopers fighting the communists on the street. I mean, is this what we're going to have? Where we're gonna have like the bikers or ex-military guys or veterans? Are they gonna be fighting um, these protesters or the Black Lives Matter people? You know, is this is this what's gonna happen in this country? Because that's that's a pretty scary proposition. You know, if I'm gonna go to work in the morning or something and have to get through like you know street fighting or riots, I mean, it's kind of crazy. It is, yeah, and and that's something we've never really seen here. In a long time is you know, any right. kind of infighting in our country to right. that that extent, almost to the point where it seems like that, that could never happen. But yeah, I think in the '30s that kind of thing did happen here to to a smaller degree than it did in like Germany or, or in Europe. Uh, but 
you would have those kind of things, but it was usually in urban areas. It was usually New York city or Chicago, or these places, you know, this kind of stuff. And I think a lot of it because of the social media, because of the internet, this could happen anywhere. Mm. Yeah, this could happen <clears throat> here in Nashville. It could happen up in Minneapolis or wherever, you know, uh, but there was a shooting that occurred not less than a like a, not less than a week than when we recorded, and a week exactly from when we uh, from when the shooting in Chattanooga was, and that was the shooting in Lafayette, Louisiana. Which I honestly I didn't hear a whole lot about. Yeah, really there there was a lot of buzz on it for about two or three days, and well, if anybody's not familiar, you know this 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 older guy went into a showing of the movie Trainwreck, the Amy Schumer movie, and just started shooting. Apparently, he instantly killed, like, two women that were sitting right in front of him, one of which that actually went to Belmont University here in Nashville. And, um, you know, just... The, he was... He apparently had all these wigs and paraphernalia in his uh, hotel room, like he was going to make an escape. And apparently, of course, and then thank God that he didn't, that, because he probably was going to perpetrate more of this stuff, that the cops, like, shot him right away. I mean, in, in the middle of a movie theater. Um, then, what was it? Was it Wednesday? I think it was this last <laughs> Wednesday. or it was, Yeah, it was last Wednesday. Yeah, Here in yep. Nashville. <laughs> okay. This guy, and as they're saying now that he was schizophrenic, this guy walked into a movie theater, like a, it was like a, a dollar theater, like south of town here. I used to go there all the yeah. time. We lived like a block from there. And they were showing the new Mad Max movie. <laughs> and this guy walks in the door <laughs> with a, um, what was it? He had like a, he had like a hatchet. A hatchet and a can of mace is what I can of mace and a airsoft gun. Okay, and like, uh, and he and he also had a backpack like strapped to his front. Right, bombs. Yeah, that he didn't. He right. Didn't, luckily, didn't have a chance to detonate. But well, apparently there were no bombs. Oh, it was really? just all fake. Oh, Every sh- bit of it, except for the hatchet. So apparently, he went in there into the theater as he's showing Mad Max and sprays this mace on people, and there was only like. Five people in the theater, you know, it's like one thirty in the afternoon right, or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not it, it, the dollar theater, no less. And I can tell you that this place where uh, this took place, like this mall area, is like one of the like most abandoned malls in Nashville. And there's like nothing, like yeah, it, it all, not it, a lot of people go there because there's yeah. a lot of gang violence in that area. Well, it all so. popped up like twenty or twenty five years ago, and it grew really rapidly, and it was supposed to be this great new area, right. and then it just collapsed into right. <laughs> what it is now yeah and so they closed all the businesses over there and apparently uh, people couldn't leave apparently the guy had tried to get into a local business in the back and people thankfully did not let him in and the police were already on the scene because they were working a traffic accident and apparently someone it was either had been in the theater or had been uh the the theater itself or had been in the vicinity said that there was something going on and it was reported as a shooting. Of course, the guy only had an air airsoft gun 
the cops went into the theater, confronted the guy. He picks up the airsoft gun and they shoot him dead. And of course, okay, it's an airsoft gun, but the cops don't know that. No, they they should shoot you if if the cops come in to solve a matter and you pick up anything that looks like a gun and point it at them. You need to right. get. Ex- you know, I mean, that's just expected. And don't airsoft guns don't they have like those tips on the on the like the? They're the, supposed the to have an orange, the bright colored orange, an orange tip component. On it. To, yeah. yeah, it's illegal to have one that's that doesn't have that. But right, but I think they're easily removable or just paint it. Yeah, yeah. So the guy basically committed suicide by a cop. Yeah, uh, just uh, just total insanity, and. People were freaking out around here, thinking that we had another shooting, like what happened in um, Lafayette, Louisiana, or what happened in 2012 at, uh, in uh, Aurora, Colorado. Um, what's funny, and I think that this is probably more in the lines of like a coincidence than anything else, is that there was, a lot of this has been around, that Aurora shooting trial i don't know if you've noticed that but like mm-hmm. the day the lafayette shooting happened uh that was the day that he apparently uh, james holmes was uh convict or, or declared guilty the the jury declared him guilty and when this happened here in nashville the other day on wednesday we're recording this on august 9th um I think there was something going on with his sentencing or, or someone had, uh, they, they were, they were doing some other deliberations on his sentencing. So all this has been going on <laughs> as, <laughs> as these other two shootings happened. And I've, I've noticed those kind of connections before. And I always wonder, I, I, I really don't think they're intentional. I think it's sort yeah. of a subconscious thing. Like somebody's on the edge and then they hear a few little clips here and there of something. And it's just right. enough to kind of like, trigger him or whatever right this guy in the the theater um he he was apparently a real piece of work i mean he was apparently like really really staunch like serious right wing um he'd been on a few like radio shows um i think in the 90s this guy in phoenix city alabama or columbus georgia which is right across the river uh would put him on and the Another thing was was that he had, um, was being evicted from his house or something, and apparently he had just like the people were trying to get him out of this house and like he completely ruined the house like he, you know, apparently crapped all over the place <laughs> and, and just just show them uh, yeah I mean like put like what was it he put something in the pipes. Like you put dirt in the pipes or something like that, just like to make things explode. And then apparently just decided so consumed with hate that he just decided to go in there to that theater and start shooting. And it's funny when you think about how many the movie theaters there are in the United States, how many multiple showings a day of, of a movie, how many movies are in each movie theater. And, you know, I'm at my parents' house uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and we're talking about this, 
and actually buys she buys me like a uh, for my birthday buys me and my wife uh, like thirty dollars in gift certificates to Regal Cinemas. <laughs> and I'm just and I'm just like I don't know if I want to go see a movie. And then of course my aunt chimes in and says I want to see a movie, but it's like statistically you know how likely is that to happen? But within a week of each other, just weirdness just occurs. Oh yeah, it doesn't doesn't deter me from wanting to go see a movie by any means. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like you know, people are always worried about sharks, shark attacks. You know, how many how many billions of people right. go in the ocean every year compared to the eight people that die from shark attacks? Right, exactly. Yeah, statistically, yeah, but I think our media just amp, amps it up. Amps oh yeah, fear. and it's yeah, the it's... coverage, and it's the twenty four hour news channel coverage, and that they got to kind of keep you with like all these different conflicting reports and all this kind of. All this kind of stuff. Um, well, maybe it'll drive uh, ticket prices down. Yeah. That'd be nice. Yeah. I afford to go see a movie. Well, that's why people don't go see movies, right? Because it's like $11 to go $11 see another ticket and then $14 for popcorn. It's absurd. <laughs> but anyway, it's the world we live in, folks. But uh, let's go take a break right here. Uh, of course, we don't have Luke tonight for his usual mirth and merriment. I know, that's how it's sad. He's, busy, he's busy rocking out to Marilyn Manson right now. There, so. won't, there won't be any impressions or potty humor. <laughs> <laughs> we might actually get a serious show tonight. <laughs> but uh, let's take a break. Uh, about uh, We're about 15 minutes out calling the guest. And again, we got Walter Bosley coming on. And we're going to talk about a talk about some secret missions. We'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. The 4th Annual Paradigm Symposium will again be bridging the gap in Minneapolis, Minnesota, this October 1st through the 4th. The Paradigm Symposiums were founded and exist to present you, year after year, with the very best thinkers in their fields. From ancient cosmology to ancient aliens, archaeology to esoterics, alternative history to the sciences that illuminate our understanding of who we are and why we're here. Randall Carlson, Richard Dolan, Peter Robbins, Rita Louise, John Ward, Micah Hanks, and Barry Fitzgerald, along with several other phenomenal names in their fields, will be presenting at the Paradigm Symposium 2015, held at the Crown Plaza Hotel, Mall of America in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Get your tickets now for what will be another amazing, inspiring Paradigm Symposium. For tickets, go to ParadigmSymposium.com or call 651-468-8115. Come to think, leave inspired. Well, we're back on Conspiracy Normal, guys, and on the line we have a return guest, uh, Mr. Walter Bosley. And we had uh, Mr. Bosley on back in, I believe, April, and we were talking about his three-book magnum opus, The Empire of the Will series, and kind of about uh, occult murders and uh, airships and all kinds of weird high strangeness. And we've got him back on to talk about his next book series, which is the Secret Missions books, one and two. And I understand there may be a third at some point. But uh, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, Mr. Bosley. Hey, it's good to be back. Thanks for having me on, guys. I uh, appreciate it. Well, thank you for coming on, and and we're going to talk about like a man, like a slew of topics tonight. Uh, 
this is going to be like going like kind of deep into the rabbit hole of history and um, her hermeticism and alchemy and all kinds of interesting stuff. And but let's let's talk about kind of like your idea for these books of the the, the secret missions and particularly in the first book you talk about a a figure from history that i suppose like over there in california you guys know pretty well but over here and we're in my part our part of the country in the in the southeast you know it's more like we know about this guy hernando de soto but you right. guys know about a guy named out there uh, another conquistador uh juan cabrillo Right. And, you know, how did you become interested, you know, in this story of Juan Cabrillo? And, and, and how does this kind of tie in a little bit to your Empire of the Will series? Well, you know, I, I would like to throw in there, um, you mentioned Hernan de Soto. Um, yep. Secret Missions 1 is uh, not a book just for Californians, because as you know, um, it covers the, uh, the, the East Coast uh, portion of the uh, Templar treasure mystery, and it discusses DeSoto a little bit in there, so I'm glad you mentioned him, but how, how I got into this was the, um, the Juan Cabrillo mystery, was that Juan Cabrillo kept popping up early in my Empire of the Wheel research, and I filed him away to the, the, the back of my mind, off to the side, until I could get to it. But um, it was always there. There was always something nagging me um, as I researched and, and wrote the Empire of the Wheel series. And finally, um, I think it was you know maybe a week or ten days after finishing the third Empire of the Wheel book, I just jumped into Secret Missions One because it was wow. so it was so compelling to get to Cabrillo's story. And essentially what it was that grabbed me with him was when I learned, uh, uh, you know, he's constantly on the radar and he keeps popping up. So I keep wondering, okay, why do I need to look at this guy? You know, something's telling me to look at him. So when I look closer at him and I learned that there was a mystery regarding both his birth and death, well, you could imagine how that intrigued me. And I, I'm convinced that I propose the, the most accurate explanation yet for the mystery of his birth. And, of course, I discuss uh, his death because his death is just riddled with, um, you know, Masonic symbolism and, and Templar symbolism and such that, um, I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't let it go. I had to uh, jump yeah. into that, and that resulted in Secret Missions 1. And isn't, isn't there a statue there, like, uh, uh, of him located close to where you are? Yeah, well, it's actually in San Diego at Point Loma, which is, San Diego's a couple of hours from, from where I live. It's where I, I mean, I was born in San Diego. I, I, my parents moved us away from there, like literally within weeks after I was born. And I never returned to live there until I went to college at San Diego State, SDSU. And so I, I've always had this thing for San Diego, so I, I try to get back there as often as possible. I have lived there a couple of times since college. Um, and the Juan Cabrillo statue stands at Point Loma. And it's very interesting because in my Empire of the Wheel research, in the Tuluric current aspect, the so-called ley lines, 
um, involved in that. Uh, there is a major spiral of Earth energy on the West Coast, and that spiral point starts where that statue stands. And, of course, that's one of the things that kept, I say, that Juan Cabrillo kept popping up in my Empire of the Wheel research. That was a biggie. Why was this statue of Juan Cabrillo placed right at that point? And here's what's interesting is try to find true, any details, any substantial details on the organization and the people that had that statue commissioned and placed. There's not a whole lot there. I mean, you can find a name for the organization, which I, doesn't even come off the top of my head. You know, that's how vague it is. Right, and right. when you try to find members of the organization, so that in itself is a big mystery. And, uh, you know, it, it's there he is looming over the whole thing. And I'll remind everybody that if you want to, you know, listen to uh, Walter's previous interview, that's episode 74 of Conspiranormal, and where we talk about some of these, uh, the uh, Telerik currents and this this whole idea. So I'll kind of refer everybody back to that. Um, Want to talk about just a little, a little bit like the basics of the Juan Cabrillo story, like what we know historically about him and what his achievement was. Juan Cabrillo is credited as the first European to explore what we know today is California and what was called California back then. Okay. Uh, he was commissioned um, into the Spanish army when he was, oh gosh, I think uh, he first comes on the historical scene when he's 18 or 19 years old. He's commissioned shortly after that. He ends up being an officer in the Spanish army and he's actually sent with the force that's sent in to arrest Cortez, the legendary Cortez. And it turns out that uh, he, he hits it off with Cortez sufficiently enough and is impressed with what Cortez is really about that he decides to join up with Cortez. And he and several of the other um, members of the army of Narvaez who was sent to arrest Cortez. So Cabrillo um, makes a name for himself helping capture what was then uh, let me get this right, Tenochtitlan, which is now Mexico City. Right. And he goes on, to, uh, you know, he, again, he has the title Conquistador. He's, he's in that group. He goes on to be a landowner in, you know, Central America and, and areas of the Yucatan and ultimately ends up being selected to be the second officer for the uh, what's called Alta or Upper California Exploration Expedition. And uh, interestingly enough, there is a conflict, an ex unexpected conflict and skirmish, and the original commander dies after being thrown from his horse. And Juan Cabrillo is put in command of this California expedition. Now, here's what's interesting. Cabrillo um, has long been identified. Um, there, there was some battle, or battle, debate, I should say, uh, as to whether he was Spanish-born or Portuguese. The problem is, with his name, first of all, it's not really Spanish, it's not really Portuguese. Um, there are no place names that are really connected with the name in either Portugal or Spain, although some people claim, you know, and that was the debate, is, is Portugal was claiming and Spain was claiming, they were both claiming Cabrillo. But the problem is, also, there was no record of his birth. 
Well, when you think about it, he first appears on the scene at about 18 or 19 years old, and this is around 15, 18, or 15, 19. Basically, you say, hmm, he was born sometime around 1500 or 1501. And what happened in 1500? But right. the Portuguese explorer, Pedro Cabral, uh, landed on and claimed what is now Brazil for Portugal. And, and, and I'll, I'll give a little tidbit. Brazil's going to come back a little bit later in this discussion. So. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Well, um, yeah. it, that plays into what I think about uh, Juan Cabrillo. But uh, there he is, um, a recognized Portuguese in command of a Spanish expedition to go explore this then very mystical land of California. And um, that's really where things get real interesting in his story. Well, let's rewind the clock a little bit, and let's go back about uh, Ron Cabrillo. I believe that's around like the 1520s. Is that correct? That's the time period that he uh, Well, yeah, well that, that, that's when he emerges. Um, the California expedition was in, I believe it set off in 1541. 1541. Okay, so it's around the same time as the DeSoto expedition, and also the Coronado expedition. It's all kind of around the same the same era, the same the, time. The same. Um, exactly. That uh, oh. that 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 old bastard Coronado was going around about the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, the Coronado is one of those who is responsible for the um, rather exaggerated. Uh, uh, broad brush painting of the reputation of all conquistadors, but we'll get into that later. So about 200 years earlier, there is another group, a group of knights that, that is very well known now through, you know, stories like the Da Vinci Code and Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and uh, also, you know, uh, popular video games, mm -hmm. uh, the Knights Templar. Yes. And, you know, what is this, what is the connection to the Knights Templar? And, you know, what's some of, like, the proofs that they may have actually come to the New World? Well, there are, of course, legendary tales um, associated with both uh, Scotland and Portugal um, be connecting the Templars to the New World, um, primarily because during the persecution of the Templars by the Church and the uh, Crown of France, the Templars fled and found refuge, sanctuary, in Scotland and Portugal. The monarchs of those countries refused to uh, um, arrest them. They refused to, to basically follow this rampage that the Pope and the King of France were on. And so what happened was you had, uh, subsequent to the Templar persecution, you had um, a, a Portuguese prince by the name of Henry, and this is interesting, not to be confused with Henry Sinclair, the, uh, the, 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 the royal, the, the prince in Scotland who was, whose family was part of providing refuge and sanctuary for the Templars who went there. Prince Henry, the navigator, was uh, in Portugal. And, of course, he was famous for building the Portuguese fleet and, and, and being involved with backing explorations and such. And so there's, you know, of course, a legend that uh, he sent 
ships to the Americas, and more specifically, uh, Templar ships. These were secret Templar expeditions. And um, the, uh, the evidence is greatly circumstantial, but remember, um, people have a wrong impression about circumstantial evidence, and they get that from watching too much TV. Um, you, you know, you, you can you can rightfully send people to jail under the circumstances because very yeah, often can. it's yeah. circumstances that trip something up. But that's in the criminal right. world. Um, but also this applies in other things. And you know, sometimes you can figure out what really happened um, through the circumstances. And so even though you know a mainstream historian might say, well, there's nothing where Prince Henry specifically uh, you know that will accept stated that, uh, you know, he sent ships to this, this new world, but um, the circumstances are such that he, he very probably likely did. And what that did was that opened the new world up to the Templars, um, if you follow that line. Uh, like you said, um, a couple of centuries before the time of Juan Cabrillo, and certainly uh, many, many, you know, decades or more before Columbus. Yeah, I've always found it fascinating, this whole idea of the pre-Columbian discovery of America. And we know that the Vikings discovered America in 1000 AD. I mean, we we know that that, even though that they didn't really, you know, call it that, or they didn't see it as like, as like a new world. Right. They still, we, we know there's proof. There's ruins that have been excavated in Canada. Uh-huh. So it, it's really not too far-fetched to think that somebody in at least that 500-year period between the Vikings and Columbus was coming over here, and they could have been coming over here for some kind of sanctuary. Sure, sure. Well, and, and let's not forget, you know, the, the other uh, side over there, uh, you know, Chinese explorers and South Pacific Island explorers. Uh, I'm very much, as I might have said before, if not, I'm very much uh, a diffusionist meaning that, you know, that cultures figured out how to cross the oceans a long time before mainstream uh, consensus history. Right. Them credit. Right. And I think they were doing just that, you know, from all over the world. They were going all over the world. Well, well how else to explain? I mean, we were even talking about much earlier times. I mean, how else to explain the Egyptian mummies that, you know, that, that found traces of cocaine in their system? Right. Which right. doesn't grow in Egypt; it only grows in South America. And it's simply unfortunate that um, y- you know uh, the Smithsonian uh, was around at the time that such stories of such things were being found here in North America in the United States, because by that time, uh, unfortunately, you know certain organizations had figured out how to suppress things. Um, right. You know, in in this country, they'd been doing it in Europe for a long time. But uh, you know, if if some of these things had been found and brought to the public attention before there was a bureaucracy to speak of, um, who knows what we might have known about the true history of this continent? So, well, what are some of the proofs that the Knights Templar came over here? You know, and who was Henry? Who was Henry Sinclair? I think that's a very important uh, individual in this story. Henry Sinclair was the Scottish prince who, uh, whose family built Ross Lynn, which is connected, of course, to the uh, Templars and the whole Da Vinci Code thing. Right, yep. Familiar with that. Um, and his family provided uh, sanctuary for the Templars, as I said before. And there is a story that um, 
Prince Henry Sinclair himself led an expedition to North America, uh, specifically landing at uh, Nova Scotia. Now, I go into that in uh, Secret Missions 1, and I uh, present my theories as to what was going on with, uh, with um, oh, what's the place with the treasure? Oak Island. Yes, Oak Island. Oak Island. And Henry Sinclair's real connection with the oak trees, um, I explained that in terms of this was how the, you know, he claimed um, Nova Scotia um, in, in, for, for Scotland. I mean, Nova Scotia meaning New Scotland, technically. So there's your first clue, you know, who, who, right, when, they, right. when they eventually named it Nova Scotia, you know, go figure. Um, and yeah. <laughs> then the expedition, as I lay out in the book, um, theoretically it, it came to the mainland and came down to what we know as New England and into Massachusetts. And uh, some would say that the trail ends there. I carry it a little further south in the book, and I explain why. And um, it might even have to do with the, um, the the legends of Prince Maddock, the the Welsh prince who allegedly landed at Mobile Bay, Alabama. Um, it's it, it it's all a mix of circumstances, historical facts that can be traced, and certain and, and legend. Um, so you kind of it's one of those things where you got to look at it and decide for yourself, which is why I present it the way I do in Secret Missions 1, because the Prince Henry Sinclair expedition, in my mind, um, would explain or, or fill in a big piece of, um, uh, of the argument for the Templars having come to North America um, for, among many reasons, to uh, hide their treasure, to hide uh, their their knowledge, their information that they had that had actually got them in so much trouble in Europe and France. Right, and so some of the background on that is that the French king and the Pope, I think it was like 1307, uh, that they uh, turned against the Templars and they actually uh, began to d destroy them as an order at that point. And like actually, the where we get the whole idea of Friday the Thirteenth, and especially October Thirteenth, is because that was the day that 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 happened, that the Templars were all rounded up, and a lot of them were were executed, and a lot of them were executed for for heresy. Right. Which, uh, if you recall, in uh, I can't remember what year it was, but the 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 Vatican, the Catholic Church, finally came out and admitted that that was all trumped up. Um, right. Very, very nice, nice of those fellows to do that. Um, these, yeah. These are the, After 700 years. Yeah, these are the same guys who finally came out and admitted that the story of Mary Magdalene being a prostitute was also a damn lie. So. Uh, <laughs> well, you got to do is read the Bible for that one. You know that that's not true. I mean, that's. <laughs> uh, um, but, uh, you know, so it, you, you just got to ask yourself, what else are we supposed to buy from these guys? You know, what, what else should we question? Because, I mean, my gosh, there they've admitted to major lies that, yeah. you know, they acted upon with great prejudice for a long time. You know, and then, as a matter of fact, this it, whole thing about Baphomet, I mean, you know, the, the, the made famous now by that stupid statue that Satanist unveiled in Detroit. That's a that's a whole thing that comes out of the uh, the Inquisitions 
basically lies about the Templars. Right, exactly, exactly. So, you know, but then again, here's the thing. People are going to embrace whatever sources make them feel better about their own personal philosophies. So, you know, there it is. I tell people, you decide for yourself, Um, you know, knowing that, because uh, that's really the best we can do, short of, you know, the smoking gun, so to speak. And we don't find too many of those. So the idea is is that the Templars came over here and to the New World, mm-hmm. and specifically in the area that is now the United States and probably Canada as well. But they came here and they established these kind of like treasure uh, stashes all around. This is very like the national treasure kind of stuff. Um, so what is Juan Cabrillo's connection to that, and could he have been a Templar? Well, uh, yes. Um, here, here's the thing. It, it, it's important for people to, to realize that they didn't just cross these oceans and come to this big new world just for a safety deposit box. I mean, you know, they came here to explore a new world where you know they could live how maybe they could live how they wanted to, where they could determine what resources uh, could they uh, you know take advantage of, what what cultures were were here that they could um, establish relations with. And it just so happened that, you know, because this was relatively unknown to the masses, that it was also a good place to hide your stuff. And so that was, uh, I would say that the, the treasure vaulting was kind of a, uh, a side product, a very pleasant side product for them. Um, but uh, what, what's interesting about Templar lineage is that it all goes back to the persecution. And what happened was, uh, very specifically, after this persecution, after, of course, the um, survivors went mostly to Scotland and Portugal, um, what uh, King Dennis I, I believe it was, in Portugal, what he did was he kind of thumbed his nose at the Vatican and the French crown, and he established a new order. Um, of knights, and uh, he told the Templars, okay, all you guys, you're now in this order. So essentially what it, what it really was was just the Templars under a new name. And, it was, the order of, was it the Order of Christ? Is that what it was called, or Knights of Christ? Yeah, the, the, the Order of Christ. You'll have to excuse me. I was trying to find in the book here the, the accurate name <laughs> uh, because you know my mind has been in the other book now, and it's been you know, a little while since I wrote that one, but I believe it was just simply also known as the Order of Christ. And what this was was essentially a new name for the Templars so that they could, you know, move freely and, and not not be chased. And uh, basically that's who the original Knights of the Order of Christ were, were just the Templars. Now, right. you could be, you you could earn knighthood by birth if, uh, your father was one of the Templar Knights, or your ancestors one of the Templar Knights, you were in what's called the Hidalgo class. And if you were Hidalgo by birth, um, you know, that was it. You were accepted by the Templars. And um, here's where we come back to uh, Juan Cabrillo through Pedro Cabral. Um, as I stated earlier, Juan Cabrillo had to have been born around 1500 or 1501, Pedro Cabral shows up in Brazil and claims it for Portugal in 1500, 
um, spends, you know, a couple of years or so there. And when you look um, in Spanish, uh, there are endings, I-L-L-O, which mean, you know, the, the little one or the son of, that, that right. kind of Right. You take Pedro Cabral and you take Juan Cabrillo, and Cabrillo is essentially taking Cabral's last name and adding the I-L-L-O ending. That's a little tidbit from the book that uh, we'll share with the readers. Um, so I argue that that's the answer to the mystery of Juan Cabrillo's name is that he is actually the son of Pedro Cabral um, by either a Spanish woman in Brazil or a native woman in Brazil. We, we don't know. And therefore, that would explain also why he's generally considered uh, Portuguese by those who are in the know about this. Now, how does that tie him to the Templars? Well, Pedro Cabral was a listed member of the Order of the Knights of Christ. And interesting, interesting. Yeah. So and I, want, and I want to add too that yeah, I want to add too. It's not beyond the realm of reason to think that they could have sired a child because you know when those sailors are ready to get off those ships. Oh, uh, this 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 went on all the time. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it's for for someone to deny that um, Cabral, you, you know, had any children with local woman or a woman, you know, maybe a Spanish woman that he met while in Brazil, okay, that's just being naive. Um, and when you do the math and, and all this stuff, and why, why uh, Juan Cabrillo was accepted, you know, into the, into the you know, ranks and trusted and all that stuff, yes. it, it's because of his Hidalgo status, I argue. Um, right. You know, even though Portugal and Spain could butt heads, and, um, you know, Portuguese sailors and officers served in the Spanish Army and Navy all the time. Yeah. Magellan um, was Portuguese. Yeah, and uh, you know, so uh, uh, but but it was it was it was Cabrillo's Hidalgo status through his father um, that made him eligible to subsequently be made, I believe, into a Templar. Which the book goes into those very interesting details. Secret you, mission you know, one, just, that is. Just as a side, just as an aside, you know, there is a historical theory out there that the Portuguese may have actually known about Brazil even before Cabral officially discovered it. Oh, of course. I, the, the, the I agree with that in the, the other book yeah. we're going to talk about, Secret Missions 2, um, I argue that, or I suggest that maybe Vasco da Gama himself had landed in Brazil. Right. And, and the, the, the Pope apparently had drawn a line uh shortly after Columbus discovered the New World, and anything east of that line was belonged to Portugal. Anything west of the line belonged to Spain. Yeah. And it's it's very it's very interesting that because because the uh the Portuguese actually ended up with Brazil that way. Yes. Okay. And so some people think that maybe the the Portuguese already knew about it, and they kind of like finagled away to at least they could have somewhat of the uh, of the of the New World of the South American continent. Well, here's what's interesting: um, Vasco da Gama, um, his protege was Pedro Cabral, the right. man credited right. with discovering Brazil officially. So, um, as Secret Missions Two goes into. Um, I point out why it's possible that Vasco da Gama had secretly landed on Brazil prior to Cabral's, you know, 
historical discovery. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, they, and, I, and I've been to Brazil, and I've been to Natal, which mm-hmm. is on the tip of uh, the very like eastern tip of Brazil. Mm-hmm. And besides places like Greenland, it is like the easternmost part in the Western Hemisphere. And really between there, and it even says it there when you go, that between there and the coast of Africa, it's only 700 miles. It's not a very long distance. That's right. That's right. Yep. And, um, well, and, and when you think about, go back to the Prince Henry, um, the navigator of Portugal stories. I mean, if he, if, you know, that might um, uh, prove or even, you know, more securely suggest that Prince Henry, the navigator of Portugal, indeed did send expeditions to the Americas because maybe da Gama, you know, found out about it through, uh, you know, Prince Henry, the Portuguese yeah. Henry's records. So, you know, when, when you start looking at all these things, a lot of this starts making honest good sense. Um, yeah, it's what you're taught in history class because it's a crack, <laughs> basically. Uh, yeah, a lot of it, yeah, a lot of it, because unfortunately um, academia is controlled by consensus historians, and consensus historians have salaries, they have tenures, they have houses and cars <laughs> to deal with. Exactly. And not, let's not forget, above all of that, they place their reputations, 90% of them. And so, you know, there, there's just business and politics. It's a priesthood. You know, it's no different than a priesthood, um, you know, that's what I got to say on that. <laughs> now, now here's one interesting aspect that I found just, Oh my man, I found this so absolutely fascinating in the first book. And this is that we talked about the statue of Juan Cabrillo and apparently he is in that statue. He's like holding a sword. Yes. Uh, now there is some link here to and you draw this link to the sword Excalibur. Oh, indeed. And the sword that was possibly used by Joan of Arc. Yep. And what's what's the link to to Excalibur? How does that enter into the story? When you look at the details of the story of this particular sword of Joan of Arc's, you uh, come upon um, a connection to the sword of Charles Martel. There's a researcher um, named uh, Lance Bernard who has uh, made the direct connection, and and I quote him in the First Secret Missions book, and uh, he's done an excellent job pointing out that the sword of Joan of Arc was very probably the sword of Charles Martel. Now, Charles Martel, of course, is the French uh, 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 prince who... um, Fended off the uh, the the Muslim invaders, um, right? Yeah, at Tours. And there's this very interesting story about how the sword came to him, how it was forged from a meteorite. And I immediately thought, oh my God! You know, when you when you draw when you forge a sword from the metal of a meteorite, what are you doing? You're drawing it from a meteorite. What is a meteorite? but a stone, a sword from the stone, the sword and the stone. I thought, my gosh, could it be? And I'm, I'm not the first guy, I'm sure, to uh, think about that. But it, it was, I had never stumbled upon that, you know, uh, before uh, with this particular story. So I looked into it, and, I, I, you know, I was into Arthurian legend when I was younger, so I'm pretty familiar with it. 
and I realized, my gosh, in each um, story, Joan of Arc, Charles Martel, and the story of King Arthur and Excalibur, you have um, this sword coming, it's believed, from God or, you know, from this uh, godlike entity. And now here's what's interesting. In the case of Joan of Arc and in the case of King Arthur, it's coming from a female. In Arthur's case, the Lady of the Lake provides yes. the the Merlin and right. him. In Joan's case, it is St. Catherine of Alexandria. And those of you who remember my Empire of the Wheel <laughs> research, you will know that Rick and I, Rick Spence and I, my co-author on the first book, we have the chapter that shows that St. Catherine of Alexandria was a total fabrication, that she is actually the goddess Hecate. There Therefore, Joan of Arc got uh, the sword from the goddess Hecate, because it was St. Catherine of Alexandria who was speaking to Joan and who sent her to the church, uh, St. Catherine of Fierbois, I believe is how you pronounce it, um, to find this sword where Charles Martel apparently left it. So Don't you, you have, love all these connections, Walter? Pardon? Don't you just love all these connections? I love it. Uh, it's It just... <laughs> illustrate more. So, you know, there you have um, the, the, the Lady of the Lake, in my mind, is Hecate, um, this goddess Hecate. And um, there you have, um, you know, this sword from the stone, uh, you know, for Charles Martel. Uh, basically, as I say in the book, and the book, goes, as you know, the book goes into greater detail on this, but what I do is I present my theory that Joan's sword it's either that Joan's sword was Charles Martel's sword, which was the real Excalibur, or uh, Joan and Martel, Joan and Charles Martel's sword um, was a sword of the same type as Excalibur, the same type of technology. And again, of course, Secret Missions One goes into that pretty deeply, and how it even ties in with Arthurian legend with the Round Table and the Twelve chairs of the round table um, equal the 12 elements of this sword. It's, it's really interesting stuff, how it reveals itself when you just trip across, you know, one illuminating thread. Yeah, and, and this is going to kind of lead us into the discussion on Secret Visions 2. But you know, we just talked about the round table, the 12 elements, and there is a discussion here about the sword Excalibur. Uh -huh. We'll just use that term for lack of a better one. But the relationship to this whole idea of Orme. And this is something we talked about not too long ago with Nick Redford on the show. And talking about how um, the, the when we invaded Iraq in 2003, that, that, that some people think that the, we, that the museums were raided for this secret of Orme, whatever Orme is, and and then how this kind of relates to like this this idea of, the, of alchemy and the philosopher's stone, and what the connections of that may be to these sword or swords. Right. Well, I would say that there is an obvious uh, connection in the general sense that even to this day, the powerful are looking; they are actively looking for this uh, lost technology of a forgotten civilization, uh, big time. I first, I first 
for myself, when I say I first realized or discovered, I'm speaking for myself because I'm by no means the first guy to ever think this. But when it, uh, let me say this. When it dawned on me that that was going on in Iraq was the day I was standing on top of what's called the Ziggurat of Ur, um, which is just uh, you know a few miles from the ancient city of Ur, U-R, which is in a, uh, a, a crevice, a crevasse or whatever, um, in the ground, a few miles from this ziggurat um, outside of Nasiriya. And I was over there on my counterterrorism job, and I'm standing on top of this ziggurat wow. with a buddy, and, and it dawned on me. I'm looking over there at Ur, um, which there was no way we could get within a mile of because they were really controlling access to it. I wanted so much to go over there. But I'm standing there, and, and I started putting the pieces together. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Every place where there was a, really a major conflict in the Iraqi war is connected to um, these ancient sites. And, uh, you know, it crossed my mind, wow, could the real reason that we're here be to capture this technology? Could it be? And, you know, I, I came away from Iraq, um, you know, with my skin intact and, and with that idea in my head. And uh, it's always intrigued me that, you know, that was going on. And I'm even further convinced, of course, uh, that's, that's a great theme in Secret Missions 2, the Burton book, you know, that there is um, a search for this lost technology big time. And um, the signs of it are in our lore, our folklore, our histories. And, you know, I felt like I just stumbled upon it in, um, you know, digging into the life of this mysterious Juan Cabrillo guy. So we're talking about um, Orme. We're talking about your, experience, your experiences in Iraq. And it was just kind of like briefly before we kind of get into the Secret Missions 2 stuff, what is this? What is this kind of ancient technology that this, this sword could have been made out of? Well, it here's the thing. It depends on your view of... For me, it's not so much what it was made out of that is the big mystery, because it, it's made out of, you know, elements, various uh, elements. Um, but uh, specifically... Um, the, the thing about the makeup of this sword, according to the theory of the Orme and the Twelve Elements, is what these elements do together. Um, they conduct great power. They, they give... They're, they're, together, they're stronger than, you know, the average steel um, or, or other, you know, whatever else you might forge. Um, there, there's, there's even electromagnetic properties about it so you could you could power it up so to speak in other words you could you could plug it in or have you know some type of energy source in the um, yeah. in in the uh, tilt you know the the grip of the sword itself could be where um, energy in, in some form of battery is stored uh, we're, we're talking you know not exactly a lightsaber but you know maybe some type of electromagnetic sword um, if you read the descriptions, the earliest descriptions of Excalibur, you, you, you're reading a list of um, all the properties of this Orme. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very interesting. Um, the, 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 the wielder of Excalibur was, you know, you couldn't defeat him, um, particularly if he kept the scabbard 
with him. There was something important about the scabbard. And that might have been the source of the energy, the power. Um, but but the, the thing that excites me the most about just the idea of this is that it, uh, it, you know, it points to the idea that there was one or more civilizations on this planet in, in remote antiquity that were just as advanced, if not more advanced, than we are today, technologically speaking, um, you know, with flying machines and, and uh, you know, right. you name it, all the things we have, and, and maybe even more. But, uh, you know, naturally, you know, people in power today, um, and, and I don't mean that to be interpreted as bad. A lot of people automatically say, oh, people in power are looking for this. Of course they're bad. They must be bad. Okay, that's naive. That's childish. That's sophomore thinking, okay? Um, not everybody's bad. Not every rich person is bad. Not everybody in power or government is bad. I mean, you know, I say to people who think that, I tell them, don't be ridiculous. Knock it off. Grow up. But uh, it's natural to understand why, you know, anybody in these positions um, would, you know, want to find these relics, um, you know, uh, for the obvious reason, to reverse engineer them, right, to see how it could be applied today. But also to understand um, the history of humankind on this planet, the true history, and not what we're forced to. You know, one of the things that I found fascinating was you talk about this idea that, you know, that the sword... Uh, that they could not be defeated in battle. And in fact, Joan of Arc was only captured when she did not have the sword. That, yeah, that, that made me just automatically think of the Ark of the Covenant. That's right. And if you recall in there, and I go into this in the book, not to ruin it for any you know, potential readers out there, um, you know, when you read the actual transcripts of her trial, she would not give up that sword. They were more yeah. interested in what she did with that sword, who she gave it to, than they were interested in anything else, okay? Um, and she would not give it up. She said, I don't know, you know, I gave it to my brothers. And what's interesting is, huh. as I point out in the book, the, you don't hear anything about them going and uh, harassing her brothers. Why is that? Because as I point out, her brothers may very well have also been of this Hidalgo or Knights Templar status. And they okay. wouldn't have dared, you know, push that because they, you know, it, that had already been pushed, and uh, the pushback was that I think they realized they were going. The Vatican and the old, you know, school monarchs of Europe realized that uh, once the Templars had gotten their their feet on this new world soil, they had lost something big that they assumed they were going to be able to get and keep for themselves. And even though they gave it a good try, um, you know. It didn't happen. So I, I think, you know, that's just a sidebar. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, it, it's just the age-old story of, you know, what's really going on. Those who know want to know more. And unfortunately, you know, some of those want to exploit the past and see how it can apply today in, uh, in a manner to um, expand their own power. Did I meander? So so is, did Cabrillo, would you think that he was looking for the sword? And also there was a lot of strangeness about his death as well. Well, um, I don't think he was looking for the sword per se. I, I mean, that's kind of a yes and no, and that's one of the things I want to keep to the book. Um, yeah. 
that that's an important part of the book. But uh, you know, to kind of answer your question, yes, there is because you've read the book. To answer your question for the listeners, um, yeah, I propose what the connection between Joan of Arc's sword and Juan Cabrillo actually was, and I go into that in detail, and that has everything to do with, I believe, um, the faking of his death. And, right, right. And the manner in which it was done and why. And you had mentioned it before that there was some Masonic symbolism there with his death as well, which you know, we can kind of interpret that to even mean Templar symbolism. Yeah, absolutely. I, I argue that he was made a Templar through this, uh, this, this whatever, you know, this false story gives major clues. And the book goes into that in detail as to how it corresponds to Masonic ritual. And I, oh. I think through that, through what really happened, he was officially initiated into Templar knighthood. Well, let's talk about Secret Missions 2. Mm -hmm. And we're getting into the story of a gentleman, an explorer, an adventurer of his time in the 19th century named Richard Francis Burton. And you posit in the book that he had a connection to this kind of like hermetic or Masonic network mm -hmm. and that this network themselves had a, an interest in this advanced ancient civilization and finding proofs of it. Yes. So who was Burton? First of all, what was his kind of like his achievements that he had done? Well, Richard Francis Burton, Sir Richard Francis Burton, he was knighted later in life. Um, he of course is the, uh, he, he's a legendary geographer. He was, a uh, an uh, an officer member, official member of the uh, Royal Geographical Society, and he's very famous for having sought the uh, went you know to seek the source of the Nile in Africa. He himself did not uh, find it, but he was on the expeditions which led to the discovery of it. Um, yes. He of course uh, in doing this. Um, did uh, exemplary work in um, anthropology, uh, geography, um, you know, all the, uh, oh, what's the, uh, I've, I've, I'm doing a brain dump on the other term, but, but, but basically geography and, and anthropology he's well known for. And of course, he um, contributed greatly to literature. He was the first English translator of the Kama Sutra, uh, which, you know, raised some eyebrows and was very titillating during the Victorian era. And uh, he also was, I believe, the first to interpret the Arabian Nights into English. And those are his two most fav uh, famous uh, literary interpretations that he's known for. But um, he also grew up with a father who... Uh, I'm convinced, was every bit the alchemist. He attended a university where he was introduced to and surrounded by uh, Freemasons and Hermeticists, alchemists, uh, Kabbalists. And um, he went on to his career uh, after essentially being tossed out of Oxford. And I have some thoughts on that in the book. Um, he went on to his historical exploits but at the same time, there appears to have been a parallel um, uh, 
I don't want to overuse the word mission, but a, a parallel agenda there on his part um, that had to do with the places he went and the things he saw and the areas um, that would have exposed him to certain things that he may not be known for, but he most likely looked into. Right. It, he would, One of the things that he was looking for, or he was actually, he went to North America at a certain point, I think I believe like the 1860. Yes, it was 1860, the year before the Civil War broke out. Yes. And one of the interesting connections that you make is that he goes to, well, what is now Utah. Mm -hmm. But he meets with Brigham Young, the yes. basically the very famous, not the not the founder, but pretty much like the second most important person, I'd say, in Mormonism, right? You have Joseph Smith, and then you have Brigham Young, who continued on the work. Yes. But you have a very interesting idea of what he was actually probably discussing with Brigham Young or why he was out there, what he was actually doing in Utah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I am convinced that Burton went to North America. Uh, his biggest reason for going there was the, the trip to the West and to Utah to specifically find out what he could um, from the Mormons uh, in Salt Lake about what they knew about the uh, lost civilization, the forgotten civilization, because I don't know if, uh, how familiar your listeners are with um, the Book of Mormon itself. Uh, everybody's familiar with all the stuff that gets made jokes about and, and <laughs> you know, things like that. Uh, but right. what, what's actually in the Book of Mormon is a story of, uh, you know, the lost tribe of Israel um, coming to the Americas. And by the way, um, you know, stating that there were others here before them. And, you know, probably not referring necessarily just to the, what we know now as the Native Americans. And um, the book goes into some very interesting uh, details about this, this Mormon idea of a lost civilization here in America. Well, what were some of their ideas about this lost civilization? They had said that there was, a, well, as I understand it, you know, like the lost tribes of Israel came over to the what is now the United States. Mm -hmm. And there's also some indication of possibility of South America as well. And yeah. they established these these large cities. You know, yeah. so what what is he what was he kind of like would have been would have been looking for? Like was he looking for the proof of these of these places? He was looking he would have been looking for I'm convinced he was looking for what they actually knew of the lost yeah. civilization. As I state in the book, my position is that Joseph Smith, the story is, uh, according to the, the Book of Mormon and the witnesses and Smith himself, is that when he was a younger man, he found uh, in a mound, uh, I stomped my foot there for those of you who know about the mound building cultures, he found, well, in a hill um, called Camorra, these uh, ancient golden plates upon which uh, were written in a lost language, um, the story of, you know, this lost tribe and this lost civilization. And uh, Smith and the witnesses claimed that uh, the Book of Mormon is a, a verbatim transcription of that. Now, personally, I argue, my position is that um, Smith indeed did find these golden plates, 
but what was in the Golden Plates was not the Book of Mormon. I argue that the Book of Mormon is Smith's uh, creation, uh, plagiarizing um, these plates, what's in the plates about the lost civilization. So I think Burton um, would have probably suspected the same thing or even, you know, concluded the same thing, he and his hermetic masters. And he came to Salt Lake, he went to Salt Lake, um, to see, you know, if he could get them to show him, you know, what what they really... Uh, drew their Book of Mormon from. Uh, because I argue, I, I think the Mormons have the plates in Salt Lake. I don't think Joseph Smith put those plates back. I think he kept them. I think they're vaulted in Salt Lake. I think Burton and the Hermetic organization he worked for would have known this or suspected it. I think Burton went to Salt Lake to see if he could get Brigham Young or any of the elders to give him access to those plates or the direct information about the lost civilization. I don't think Burton bought the Book of Mormon um, for five minutes, but I do think he was likely convinced that that they the information they had about lost civilizations was true. As I was reading the book, I, I couldn't help but think of some of like the studies that uh, that I've that I've studied a little bit about Mormonism, and there are some interesting. Um, parallels of Mormonism with Masonry. And it's almost as if um, Mormonism, in a way, is a combination of Freemasonry and kind of like mainstream Protestant Christianity. That's exactly what it is. I wonder if it's a possibility that, uh, because we know that Joseph Smith, we know that he was uh, the founder of Mormonism, we know that he was like one of these uh, treasure hunter guys, and they did some like they did some like mystical stuff to try to find uh, treasure. And I wonder, I gotta wonder, you know, if he was in a lodge and he just made this amalgamation, and maybe possibility some of those traditions he may be pulled some of those traditions from masonry as well. Well, what what I know of Joseph Smith is um, pretty much it, it's it's pretty much a done deal what you just described but yeah, it, yeah it's well known that he was quite enamored of freemasonry and a lot of people think that the freemasons founded mormonism and i just again it's like the people who just are convinced that walt disney was a a mason i just shake my head roll my eyes <laughs> good god uh no freemasonry did not found mormonism a man who was very much enamored by Freemasonry, um, and off the top of my head, I'm trying to remember what his um, involvement with Freemasonry was. I don't think it's as deep as people like to assume. But uh, yeah, it, it's well known that um, that uh, Smith was enamored of Masonry and totally put Freemasonry, embedded it within this religion he created. Um, so it was more of a case of you know, in a Freemasonry influenced guy. Uh, created uh, Mormonism as opposed to, you know, the Freemasons themselves doing it in some official capacity. Yeah. But uh, the, the, reason, the reason it looks like that is because that's exactly what happened. Um, he, just, he just dug Masonry. So he, you know, what's it's interesting is he's really the first guy to, the only guy I'm aware of to found a church based on Masonry. Um, there, there are no others in spite of yeah. what people might think um so yeah yeah that's the what you suspect is absolutely true he did do that you know on on purpose consciously 
and and Burton, after he's posted in the United States, mm-hmm. he gets sent to Brazil. He becomes uh, officially he is like a, a a British consul there. Yeah, he's a British uh, consul. Remember, this is there's a uh, uh, a five year period in between his visit to the United States and then his assignment to the consulary in Brazil. Yeah. What was he doing in that five years? He was dealing with um, issues related to Africa, um, doing some more uh, exploration-involved business, you might say, and and also dealing with, um, uh, after the Africa explorations, John Henning Speak, um, his his partner in command of their uh, famous expedition um, going to look for the uh, source of the Nile, the one they went on together. Uh, which has been made into an excellent film called Mountains of the Moon, by the way. Um, John Henning Speak had some issues, and he came back and he got spun up by uh, a publisher, an unscrupulous publisher named Oliphant. And uh, Speak and uh, Burton got into some legal battles. And, um, you know, there there was also the um, some issues with uh, the Crimean War uh, Burton served in. Um, there was just some things going on in that five-year period that kind of curtailed his search for the um, the lost civilization, and uh, he finally, in 1865, got the post to Brazil and resumed it. I did not go too deeply into the period between his uh, return from the United States and his going to Brazil because it didn't have a whole lot that reflected upon what I was yeah. looking. Specifically, it dealt with Africa. It dealt with his time, you know, serving in the Crimean War, and it just dealt with a lot of, you know, kind of a political and legal uh, uh, segment of his life. Okay, okay. But he goes to Brazil, and his wife, and he become aware of this manuscript that was written about a hundred years before, called Manuscript Five Twelve. Yes. And what exactly is that? Is manuscript five twelve? Who was it written by? And what does it describe? And what do you think that Burton? Why he would have found that interesting? Well, um, there is some debate over who the actual, or the, I should say, the name of the author of manuscript five twelve. We do know that he was uh, a uh, commander of an ex a Portuguese expedition through the Mato Grosso jungle, um, which, as you know, is uh, no small patch of wood. Um, <laughs> no, in, uh, no, no, no. Um, And uh, that, I believe, his travels, his, his group's travels went on for nine or ten years. And at one point, they come across this uh, city, this unknown, heretofore unknown, long-forgotten, abandoned uh, city, which is known as the City of 1753, according to the manuscript and references to it, uh, because 1753 is uh, when it... Um, uh, uh, I, I, I apologize, it's either 1743 or 1753. I, I'm, all these years I jump around. Anyway, um, this Portuguese expedition stumbled upon this city, and the report about what they found is known manuscript 512. It was numbered as such, and then it was filed away in Rio de Janeiro. 
um, and sat there for 86 years, uh, you know, unknown to the public, unknown to the world, until 1839 when an official there came across it and uh, brought it to light. And then it was not translated into English, so it was therefore unknown to the English-speaking world as such, um, until 1865 when it was translated by, of all people, Isabel, Mrs. Richard Francis Burton. Right, right. And that translation, by the way, was accomplished mere uh, two or three weeks, nearly two or three weeks before Burton got on the boat and went to Brazil, departed for Brazil. So he departed for Brazil with a fresh translation. The ink was barely dry on it. When, when he came to Brazil, and uh, I argue that uh, his reason for taking the Brazilian post, probably the reason that it was um, maneuvered so that he would get the post, and certainly what he spent most of his time focusing on while he was in Brazil, was all about Manuscript 512 and that city described within. It's a very fascinating document. And I know that there's been some debate on it. Uh, some people think that 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 it's we will either it's a hoax or it's describing some natural formation. But what is kind of like your feelings on it? Um, the hoax thing is just the typical. You know, there's people out there that they have to they have to throw the hoax paint on something. They got to throw right, it right. in the uh, conversation just to get it in the mix because the, you know once it's thrown in there. Um, let me put it to you this way. You know, uh, you and I go to Paris, we see the Eiffel Tower, we come back, um, you know, to the United States, and we tell some people that have never been to Europe about the Eiffel Tower, and, you know, you have one guy in the mix who's just a sourpuss, and, you know, he throws the word hoax in there, <laughs> oh, this Eiffel Tower doesn't exist, it's just a big hoax. Well, you've got a big chunk of people who, once they hear one person level the hoax accusation, then they write it off as a hoax. And uh, so I think that's why, you know, this manuscript 512 um, being a hoax itself, um, you know, I, I think that's why the hoax thing, I just disregard that. Now, as far as it being a natural formation, um, when you, I've read that, and when you read uh, either a natural formation or a much lesser uh, uh, uh relics or ruins, when you read the description in the document itself, which, by the way, is an authentic and authenticated document, um, it is no hoax, when you read that description, um, the, uh, the very uh, weak alternative that has been offered that it was these lesser ruins, um, again, that's just, to me, uh, another attempt to, um, you know, a little sleight of hand. They don't want you to pay too much attention to what's in the document, so they offer this. Uh, and the idea that, um, that uh, uh, what, and we'll get into this later probably, you know, Colonel Fawcett was looking for, might have found, or, or even what was in Manuscript 512, that it was just a native village is absolutely ridiculous, again, when you read the details in Manuscript 512. Um, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about Burton. Let's talk about, like, like where do you think he went on this, he, he takes this expedition, and what's, would you make the point that Burton was very, 
uh, meticulous in documenting where he went. And there's yeah. only, I believe, two uh, instances where in his life or his adult life through this lo- amazing life of adventure that he r- lapsed. And one of those was this South American expedition that he took. Yep. And that that you that you find that very odd that this man would not talk about going into South America. So where do you think that he went? What do you think that he saw? And if there is a record of what he did and what he saw, why is that still not been released? Well, let's make a distinction here. Remember, he spent um, over three years in South America as the consul. Right a consul to Brazil, and uh, because some people will do lazy scholarship and they'll whip up Wikipedia and they'll say, well, come on, he wrote a book. He wrote more than one book about his time in South America. Yes, he did. I'm specifically looking at and talking about that six-month period in which he just disappeared into the wilderness and wrote not a word about it. Very specifically, four months of that is completely unknown. And um, uh, what he what he did with his book um, explorations in the central highlands of Brazil or explorations in the highlands of Brazil was very clever. He he was all over the region of Minas Gerais and and you know that area of of Brazil, which is essentially where the explorers who came back with the story in Manuscript 512 were exploring in the area where they probably found the city. Burton was all over that in the first couple of years that he was in Brazil, and in his book, Explorations in the Highlands of Brazil, he goes in great detail about what he found in the 1860s. And as an appendix, he includes the full English translation of Manuscript 512. But nowhere in the two volumes of this book of his exploration of that area, the first two years he's there, does he mention Manuscript 512 by title or even go into the lost city. So here's the book (laughs) in which he offers all this detail where he's crawling over the area and includes the very manuscript in question as an appendix, but he doesn't say a word in reference in the body. Um, I think that was a very clever way of him, you know, those who are open enough and sharp enough to figure it out, he's saying, uh, hey, take a look at this appendix. This is what I was looking for, without saying this is what I was looking for. And um, subsequent to that, of course, he disappears in South America in his last six months. And I want to point out something here to the audience, is that the reason why you look at this and you you make the speculation that you do, that there's a lot more to this and of a secretive nature, is that you understand this world being a former, in, in, in the intelligence and intelligence agents yourself. Yeah, it, you know, when you... And, and, and there's a lot of different jobs, a lot of different capacities that people in the intelligence community, counterintelligence community can, can work and do, but um, even within just the operational realm of that, um, but, you know, once you've worked in that, whatever your particular brand was that you were doing, once you've worked in the operational world, 
you begin to recognize, I mean, well, yeah, you early on recognize it when you see it. Um, you know how it's uh, masked. You know how to read between the lines. You understand, particularly with military careers and the careers like uh, Richard Burton and uh, uh, Juan Cabrillo had, um, and then, of course, Colonel Fawcett, who we'll probably get into, um, you know, you begin to be able to read more about what these guys were about than the historical record presents. You understand more. And absolutely, the more I had already admired uh, Burton, you know, for years before this. And when I learned about this, I was in the middle. I was midstream in January, early February of a novel, one of my pulp novels. And when I happened to just, I was doing some free reading, and I stumbled upon this little fact of uh, the otherwise prolific Burton uh, not writing a word about, you know, this this six-month period in South America. And, of course, my gosh, you know, my eyebrows shot up and the light went on. My question is, wait a minute. What was he doing there, of all places, that he didn't write a word about? And once I dove into it, I, you know, set the novel aside, and, of course, you know, five months of work resulted in this book we're talking about. But uh, a lot of that had to do with the fact that, yeah, um, you know, here's a guy who was a known intelligence operative during his time in the military in uh, India, Arabia. He was a known intelligence operative. He was a military officer and, and, you know, and and all the other things that I go into in the book. So, um, yeah, uh, it's, it's convincing to someone like me you know what I've what I've written here. So you basically believe that he found the city that was described in manuscript five twelve. I propose um, that he very well could have in in prob- Yeah, I propose that he probably did. Yes. What was the interest? What's the interest of keeping the existence of this city secret? Oh well, that goes back to what we're talking about earlier, where even today. You know, nations uh, are seeking this lost technology, this information about these lost civilizations. Yeah. Um, it, for the, it's the very same reasons. I I think that the motive for uh, the motive for the British intelligence connection to this secret expedition was uh, just that. The um, you know, what could they learn that would give their nation you know whatever advantage it could take from this. Then there was the Hermetic organization, their motive. Their motive was, right. you know, who was here before us that was so advanced, you know, this because the, the Hermeticists, they're very much interested in this, this lost uh, civilization of remote antiquity. So uh, with Burton, you had a representative of, representative of both interests. And, um, you know, I, I think that whatever he found must have been substantial for it to remain a secret to this day. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, it's, uh, it's fascinating. Uh, absolutely fascinating. And one thing I, I, I kind of wanted to ask you to speculate upon is, you know, we're talking about over well, uh, over 250 years ago when Manuscript 512 was written. And then we're also talking about now, uh, about 150 years ago, it's where the point where Burton may have found this place. Yes. Is it still there? And I know that Brazil has developed a lot since then. I so, would say, yes, it's still there. 
um, I would say it's very likely a restricted area. Um, protected. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, it's protected, possibly? Yeah, yeah, that it's not only protected, but I mean restricted. I don't think just anybody, you know, any scholar or academic can go there. Um, yes, as I said, uh, not just uh, protected, but very much restricted. Um, I would say it's a classified location, uh, classified area. Now, remember, this is something that would have been so important. Uh, I'm convinced that, that this is the whole reason for the Colonel Fawcett story that we have. Um, yeah, Colonel let's talk about that. Percy mm -hmm. Fawcett, um, you would not have had Fawcett's search for his lost city were it not for this secret Burton expedition. Um, I argue that uh, Fawcett's ex whole expedition, his whole search, was a direct result of what Burton had uh, found and um, uh, followed up on and reported. And uh, I present, I don't want to go, I don't want to give away too many details because, you know, it's in the book, but I explain in detail why and what the direct connection between uh, Fawcett's expedition and Burton's expedition and uh, Manuscript 512 and all of that are because there, there are some startling connections. And that, of course, is all in the book. But, um, you, you know, I, I, I think Burton's report led to um, further, you know, investigation, of course, by the British through Fawcett and the people then that went to look for him, and, and then even, you know, likely American investigation into it. And whatever it was they found is probably associated with uh, what uh, the breakaway civilizations, in some cases, already knew or discovered. This is all, um, you know, I have a, a method to my madness. This is all connected to um, the breakaway civilization aspect. Yeah, let's let's talk about. I want just like real brief. Um, what's the basic story behind uh, Percy Fawcett's disappearance? Percy Fawcett, um, you know, the legend is that uh, you know he's a British Army officer and an explorer, um, a surveyor specifically. And uh, because of his personal interests in, you know, psychic phenomena and, and strange things, um, that uh, he had been given an artifact by a friend, H. Ryder Haggard, a famous writer of the day. Um, and, and this set him off on this uh, uh, search for a lost city um, that, that um, he he pursued this for several years of his life, and it, he went and searched for it once before, made some progress, then returned and uh, went back uh, one last time. Well, not intending to be his last time, but uh, he disappeared forever in the Mato Grosso jungle of Brazil uh, with his son and another associate of theirs. And um, this was in... Um, 1925, I think. Yeah, and uh, anyway, in the 1920s, yeah. and and it became uh, almost trendy, you could say, that uh, people would form their own expeditions and go look for Colonel Fawcett, right? Because this had been, um, in contrast to Burton's expedition, this was uh, Fawcett's uh, search for this lost city was well known. He talked about it a lot publicly. Um, and uh, uh, so when he's lost, all these people go in search of Colonel Fawcett, and several of them 
uh, as the story goes, or a few of them actually, when you look into it, um, a few of them uh, themselves got lost, never to return. There was an American actor named Albert de Winton who went in search of Fawcett, and uh, he too never returned. Um, there was, of course, the uh, brother of Ian Fleming, the creator of James Bond, uh, Peter Fleming, who he went on an expedition to look for Colonel Fawcett, and in the middle of that expedition, he broke off and started his own to look for Fawcett. A uh, very interesting story there. And um, <laughs> I think because of the popularity of the Fawcett story and how it resulted in more expeditions to go find Colonel Fawcett, that that helped grow the legend. And because he was never found, you know, um, it's mysterious and mystery is fun. Yeah, I believe that he referred to this place as the Lost City of Z. Yes, and um, I, I don't want to go into that too much here, but as you know, um, that's one of the things that connects him to the whole Burton story. Right, right. And uh, um, it, uh, it really it stunned me, and that's why I kind of want to keep that as a nice little tidbit for the reader because it, it's, it's one of those little, little stunners that I did not know about the Colonel Fawcett story until, I mean, I knew he was looking for the Lost City of Z, but I didn't know what it was that I came across, and I only ever found one other researcher who thought the same thing I do. Um, I, I, it, to me, it's astonishing that nobody has ever noticed this before, at least that they've written about or said publicly, other than this, this other uh, uh, guy with a blog who I I credit in the book, who I, you know, cite this in the book. Um, and uh, it's, it's when you look deeper at Colonel Fawcett and you see that he was, you know, he was an army officer. He was also, he had done some what he called secret service work. So he was connected to British intelligence. Um, and he was also in the course of his duties as an intelligence officer. He is trained to do survey. That is exactly the career of Richard Francis Burton. He goes into the military. He's made an intelligence officer and, and trained to be a survey officer, a surveyor, um, uh, um, as a cover for his intelligence activities. Um, Fawcett and Burton's careers have astounding parallels. Um, so, you know, when you look at all this, as I present in the book, you really look at it, particularly from my perspective, you see, hey, you know, two plus two indeed equals four here. Um, yeah. You know, so it's, uh, I like to say, I will say this, um, there would have been no um, legend of Colonel Fawcett and all that stuff had it not been for this mysterious Burton uh, expeditions through South America, which I propose in the book. Well, I find it fascinating, this whole concept of the breakaway civilization. And it's, uh, I, I used to really not buy into that whole thing. Right. But it, more and more, as I've looked into it, and in your book, especially the Empire of the Will series, has helped, you know, um, me to kind of come to terms with it a little bit more. You know, it, it it, what's kind of the link there to the to the to the breakaway civilization? Is it this? Is it the possibility that they're finding this ancient ancient technology and, and utilizing it? Well, here here I do um, the the last chapter of the book. I go into a chronology, so to speak, 
um, of how this thread ties all these things together, this this whole thing of the breakaway civilization. Um, you have uh, in Empire of the Wheel 2, Friends from Sonora, which, by the way, I kind of consider an unofficial um, uh, first book in the Secret Mission series, really. Yeah, it kind of is, yeah. When you look at the whole Edda Place thing and all that, you had this mysterious organization, the NIMSA, the German NIMSA, um, that uh, was very active in South America and North America. Well, when you consider that Burton was working for uh, British intelligence as well as the Hermetic organization, the Hermetic organization he was working for would have been very, very much interested in whatever an organization like NIMSA would have been doing anywhere. And, of course, British intelligence, for obvious reasons, national security, would have been interested in what this German NIMSA organization would have been doing, um, naturally. So I argue that somewhere in the mix of all this, uh, part of Burton's um, intelligence taskings would have been, um, you know, to just kind of keep an eye out and report on any um, uh, German intelligence or possibly NIMSA-connected um, uh, interests in this lost city, in these areas he was exploring. Um, it's in the mix there, simply because the NIMSA, when you read my Empire of the Wheel 2 book, um, Friends from Sonora, you learn why, who the NIMSA were and, and why they would have been interested in the lost ancient civilization. Uh, it Basically, though, in a nutshell, um, the breakaway civilizations um, theoretically have, uh, they learned about and they have expanded upon um, a technology, some of this uh, lost technology of these forgotten civilizations. So there's your connection. Um, their technology secrets, which have allowed them to break away and become what they are within within the parameters of this theory, which I of course subscribe to. Um, it, it's all it's all a result of this lost civilization and their technology, and um, the develop the further development of that part of it which they had found. And so um, I am writing the Secret Missions books within um, my vision for this is that it fits within this bigger picture milieu I'm trying to paint, this puzzle I'm putting together. You have the uh, Empire of the Wheel books and you have the Secret Missions books and they're all uh, pieces in the same big puzzle that has to do with the breakaway civilization concept, and specifically, you know, the true history of, uh, you know, mankind on Earth. Um, so, you know, Walter, it, 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 it does tie in. What, what I can't help but think of here, and we, we were talking about Excalibur, and that had me brainstorming somewhat. Of course, it made me think of the John Borman's, you know, version of the King Arthur legend, the movie Excalibur. Yes. And it made me think of this whole, this whole thing makes me think of the quest for the Holy Grail. Mm -hmm. And who's deemed worthy, worthy to hold the Holy Grail and, and all this kind of thing. And, and these different groups competing for, if you really just want to say, take out the word Holy Grail and say lost technology or even magic in a way. You know, all these different groups competing for it. You know, who's going to be the, who's going to be the top, the top dog in it? It's very right. interesting. Right, exactly. And, and 
you know, I, I think that the whole, um, I guess what you call it, moral or ethical element of that, you know, who's worthy to hold this, really, that's, that's the emotional hoo-ha that has developed along with the religion, the religiousizing of these objects and these relics. Basically, you know, he who was worthy of holding the device was the one who was smart enough to know how it worked and was smart enough yeah. to wear the gloves to properly handle it and not get zapped to death. You know what I mean? Um, that, that's where I'm coming from, you know, with it. Uh, it's not that, you know, if you eat your vegetables and you're nice to old ladies and you don't cheat on your wife, you get to use Excalibur. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's you know school children's stuff sunday school stuff whatever but um you know yeah no that that's a very good analogy just you know uh take out the word you know holy um you know and just put ancient lost advanced whatever yeah right it's, it's all these different groups competing for it and all these different like you know we talk about yeah, you know, some of the speculation about the about the Excalibur sword and about uh, Joan of Arc is that the, the these English inquisitors were actually trying to get the secret out of her. Oh yeah, and they wanted you even the sword. Speculate, you even speculate in Secret Missions one that you know that they may have sent missions to the New World in order to find it, in order to find it, and not necessarily to possess the sword, but someone knew that there was something really special about it. Well, I think they wanted to possess it. I think, I think the, uh, the, you know, and I get into this in Secret Missions 1, the dynamic aboard that ship would have been here you have Templar candidate, um, Portuguese Juan Cabrillo, uh, surrounded by, you know, pretty much a Spanish crew. And I'm sure, you know, the political officer, which, you know, in those days they called the Vatican priest, um, you know, was on board, uh, to make right. sure. It, according to how his masters wanted it to go um you know there was there was probably some tension there you might say um because that's absolutely what they were looking to find in the new world you know that was part of it was they wanted to find these templar vaults and i and again in that book i go into that and because uh, they would have loved to have gotten their hands on this stuff but you know fortunately the templars have been too wily for them and have mostly kept it out of their their, their fingers, but um, yeah, seems it, like there's a mm -hmm. a motif there uh, with these conquistadors. We mentioned Coronado, we mentioned De Soto. Yeah, and all these guys were trying to find the cities of gold. They were trying to find these these lost cities. Are maybe there was more to it than just find, trying to find just a bunch of gold. Right, they were trying to find the lost civilization, and in now you know. In some cases, these guys these guys could become very wealthy because, you know, the deal that was made, you know, in those days, even if you were a military officer for your country, you know, you got to keep some of the treasure that you found. You know, these days, at least, you know, in the U.S. military, um, uh, you know, technically, legally, you know, you don't own anything, you know, you seize. That belongs to whatever, either the people there whose country it is, or, you know, if it's seized, you know, it ain't yours personally. In those days, it was theirs personally. And I alluded to Coronado, um, who was a real jerk. Um, he, he was one of those responsible for the, this bad reputation that people like to paint all of the conquistadors with. Um, he, he was very much, he acted like that. He was cruel to the natives. And what, what you don't hear is that in Spain's defense, 
is that whenever this did happen, these guys, they were sent to the New World under strict orders to treat the natives uh, with respect, right? Uh, and, and let me tell you, Spain, if these guys were caught or accused, if they were brought up on charges that they had violated that, they were put on trial for their very lives. They could be executed or imprisoned for life. And Spain took that seriously. Spain did not send their conquistadors over here to just rape and pillage and ha, ha, ha. Yeah, of course that happened. But this was not, you know, uh, this was not, uh, you know, just allowed freely. I mean, these guys, Coronado was brought up on charges for this. And he lost this fortune that he had counted on. And he was a real sourpuss about it the rest of his life. Well, deservedly so. He probably deserved <laughs> But um, uh, not all the conquistadors were that way at all. Uh, but, you know, we live in a time where people like to broad brush everything because it makes them feel good. And we're all about making people feel good these days. But, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, it's everybody, you know, good God. Um, but um, uh, yeah, there definitely was an agenda connected with this lost civilization that, uh, you know, Spain and England and, and France, that all of them, you know, were looking for over here. Because remember, um, you know, a lot of these guys were operating with this knowledge that the Templars had captured while in the Holy Land during the Crusades. Um, so, you know, the roots of this quest go back uh, definitely to that. Right, exactly. There's something I wanted to ask you about, Walter, not to kind of stray too far um to the subject but in the time that we have left and something I really should have asked you about on the last interview and I was kind of lax about it was this um, experience I think you write about it. I think it's Empire of the Will too and you write about experience that, you, that, that your father had where he saw some kind of craft well no, my dad uh, uh, my dad's story that you know that, that he had told me um, dating back to the 70s, you know, for years. His story was that um, because of what he did in the Air Force, he was briefed in on what happened at, at Roswell. He said it didn't, you know, obviously it didn't happen in Roswell, but he said the Roswell incident, as we know it today, that he and the unit he was in, those guys, they were briefed in on that, and uh, then they were assigned to... Uh, an effort in eastern Arizona to help retrieve um, because it had happened again. Essentially what happened at Roswell, according to my dad, had happened again in the late 50s, and that's why they were briefed in on what happened at Roswell and what it actually was, and then they were sent out to Arizona to, to do their part in this big U.S. Air Force-led um, uh, rescue uh, operation to retrieve according to him, was the uh, living crewman of a craft that had crashed. Now, the big difference between my dad's story and what you usually hear about Roswell is he swore that this was not extraterrestrial, that it was a hidden civilization, that the right. uh, craft came out of the subterranean realm, and um, that that's what's down there, that they are down there, that they want nothing to do with us, that they have their own 
technology. And what's interesting is some of this technology sounds a lot like what the breakaway civilizations, organizations like NIMSA, have allegedly developed into uh, our times. So yeah, like like anti gravity craft and that kind of thing. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. utterly fascinating. Um, and that's my well, dad's story. That that's not that's nothing right. I experienced. But it's it's I have written it up. I had to write it under my pseudonym, EA Guest, um, when I submitted it to Fate Magazine. They published it. It's also in their book, The Best of Roswell. The reason I did that was because at the time, um, my employment was kind of uh, sensitive. So I really, it wasn't proper for me to write something in my own name, particularly something like that. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> but it's, we're about out of time. Walter, but I wanted to, you know, what are you working on now? Uh, is there going to be a Secret Missions 3? Uh, you know, uh, tell people a little bit about also your um, your Pulp Fiction as well. Ah, well, I have a lot people of... people can get the books. Yeah, I have a lot of fun writing uh, pulp novels. I am a fiction author as well. And some people say it's all fiction what I write, haha, but... Um... <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do write this Pulp Fiction. I have a lot of fun doing it. One of them has been made into a, a movie by director Paul Kimball of Nova Scotia. Um, and uh, his film is Cuckoo in the Clock. It's from my novel, The Devil's Mill, which they are oh, really? yeah, considerably different stories. Um, but uh, the one my that novel came out of, against Scientology. Like He's an ex-Scientologist. I saw him on the documentary HBO did. Who? Uh, Paul Kimball. I don't think Paul Kimball's ever a Scientologist. Yeah, it was a Canadian film director. I think it was his name. Uh, well, well, Paul, um, he he's actually going to be on. Uh, uh, if you know Greg Bishop, he's yeah. going to be on Greg Bishop's show, Radio Mysterioso tonight, to plug another show while talking on <laughs> yours. But uh, anyway, Paul, yeah, I'm not. I think maybe there's two that you might be getting mixed up, but. Um, uh, Paul's a guy who's been into UFO research and stuff like that, but he also directs films. But anyway, that that particular pulp novel of mine has been produced into a film. I've written other pulps. Um, I'm going to finish the one I started when I got off to the uh, Burton track. I'm going to go back and finish that pulp novel. It's titled You Will Be Mine. Um, and uh, and I am in the early stages, yes, of uh, research on Secret Missions 3, because, uh, again, I stumbled upon something um, very fascinating, and I just can't let it go. And the more I look, the more I am finding, um, and not in the crazy sense. <laughs> I mean, legitimately, the more I looked, the more I found that I deemed worthy um, to spend the time to actually. Because I, I like to be honest about these things. If I stumbled upon something and I go, hey, this might be worthy of a book, I'm not going to just commit to that book and you know, come up with a bunch of thin stuff just because I want to do another book. I have to find something that, to me, is substantial enough to warrant a book for it. Otherwise, I won't do the book just to do a book. I, I'm not that kind of a writer. Um, right. But uh, so I'm working on that. I'm working on another uh, publishing project by another author that I'll be publishing. And uh, and I'll be speaking. Um, I just appeared on Ancient Aliens a couple Fridays ago in the cool. episode called Nazi Secret Agenda. I'm in that episode on Ancient Aliens on History Channel, which I think you can find the episode on YouTube now and stuff. Um, also, I'm going to be speaking at the Alchemy event 
at uh, the Holiday Inn at LAX um, on September 24th, although I'll be there for signing books, and I'm going to be speaking on a panel between September 23rd and the 27th. Um, and then in October, on Halloween weekend, October 31st and November 1st, um, I'm speaking at the Breakaway Civilization and Secret Space Program Conference in Bastrop, Texas. And I'll be talking oh, about in, in detail uh, more of the stuff we've been talking about here today. And so, you know, I've got a busy uh, remainder of the year. You know, the two speaking events and uh, finishing up a novel, and and hopefully I'll have Secret Missions three out by uh, Christmas time. Uh, where can people get the books? You can get the books uh, in digital format on Kindle at Amazon.com, or you can get them in print-on-demand at Lulu, L-U-L-U.com. And uh, Lulu prints up very good quality uh, books, um, I'd like to add. Uh, and, uh, of course, it's at a, available at a discount price at Lulu. So, um, you know, Amazon and Lulu, digital and printed. And I couldn't recommend the books more, Walter. I think they're I think they're great. Uh, all three of the Empire of the Wheel series and both of these are just like endlessly fascinating, and it's 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 really just great food for thought. Thank you, thank you. I'd like to also mention that uh, this is 2015. Uh, uh, this month kicks off the 100th anniversary of the events of Empire of the Wheel one. So, yes. who have not read the Empire of the Wheel series? Now is a really great time to read them because, again, this this fall is, and of course, this November 18th is, I believe, the uh, 100th anniversary of the murder of uh, the mystery woman who will let the readers discover who that is um, through the Empire of the Wheel books. But uh, watch 100th it, anniversary watch, of all that. Watch out for Hecate, people. <laughs> all, right. <laughs> all right, Walter, we're going to close out this segment, but stay on the line for us. Okay. And we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. Thanks for having me on again. All right, guys, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. We just had a great interview with Mr. Walter Bosley. Yes. Yeah, and uh as usual like another mind-blowing interview. I just like that was that was uh you know, we covered a lot of ground. I think we covered like uh Africa, Asia, the Europe, whole, yeah. the whole world, just oh, like the whole, the whole, <laughs> everything. Very interesting, uh, implications there. Um, you know, uh, uh, one of the things about reading Bosley's work is people come down on him for like a lot of speculation, but you know, it is speculation, but it, I think it's healthy speculation. I think yeah. it's, it's, it's informed speculation. It's not, it's not observed like leaps of faith. Right. Like, like a lot of, I mean, I've heard a lot of stuff where where you're like, okay, I mean, that's that's just ridiculous. To, yeah, to jump from from here to there, but there there's there's so much mystery shrouding a lot of the the early exploration and the earlier cultures and there that you have to take some some stuff on on faith. Just this right. could be this could be, and he never comes out and says like, well, this is what's going on, obviously, because it, like it's never a, a set in stone yeah. thing, and that 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 matters a lot too. Yeah. This is what I think. This is a, this is, but but I could be wrong. But you know, it's 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 an informed what speculation. And, yeah. And another thing about him, and I made this point to him, was that you know he has a intelligence background. 
So he knows how that world operates mm -hmm. and he knows that he knows what it means to have like a cover identity or a cover story being put out. So he understands this kind of thing. And when he looks at it and he just puts two and two together and, and, and no one else is really coming out and saying, you know, any of this other stuff, especially about Richard Francis Burton, you know, uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a good, um, it's it's good speculation, and right. I really appreciate it. Well, and and to not question things, and to not um, sort of you know speculate a little bit or come up with alternate theories, I think it would be way worse than coming up with theories that are potentially wrong. Or yep, exactly. I wanted to read something before we um, conclude this edition of Conspiracy Normal. Uh, what do you got? <laughs> well, first, I want to ask you a question. I know you're, I know you're super tired right now. I am. <laughs> but uh, today and August sixth were the seventieth anniversary of something that happened in history. Today and August sixth. Yes. Nineteen forty-five. Play the Jeopardy theme, oh, right? Okay. It. So it, it, that would probably be, uh, see, World War II ending. Yeah. Would those be uh, the bombs? Yes. Okay. Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And uh, today's, as we record this, it's the kind of like late evening hours of August the 9th, which was the bombing of Nagasaki. And August 6th was the bombing of Hiroshima. And of course, these were the um, atomic bombs that uh, were dropped on Japan and helped in World War II, blah, 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 blah. We'll kind of get into the debate behind that. That's a whole, like, other, like, show. But uh, this is an interesting article, and I had actually heard about this guy a couple of years ago. Uh, this is called How I Survived Hiroshima and Then Nagasaki. It will go down as one of the most inspiring survival stories ever to emerge from a horrific war. Sutomo Yamaguchi was in his 20s when he found himself in Hiroshima on the morning of 6 August 1945 as a single B-29 U.S. bomber droned ahead. The little boy bomb that it dropped from its payload would kill or injure 160,000 people by the day's end. Among them was the young engineer, who was in town on a business trip from Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, who stepped off a tram as the bomb exploded. Despite being three kilometers, just under two miles from ground zero, the blast temporarily blinded him, destroyed his left eardrum, and inflicted horrific burns over much of the top half of his body. The following morning, he braved another dose of radiation as he ventured into Hiroshima City Center, determined to catch a train home away from the nightmare. But home for Mr. Yamaguchi was Nagasaki where two days later, the Fat Man bomb was dropped, killing 70,000 people and creating a city where, in the words of its mayor, not even the sound of insects could be heard. In a bitter twist of fate, Yamaguchi was again three kilometers from the center of the second explosion. In fact, he was in the office explaining to his boss how he had almost been killed days before when suddenly the same white light filled the room. I thought the mushroom cloud had followed me from Hiroshima, Mr. Yamaguchi said. This is a truly remarkable story, all the more so because for years its protagonist was determined to play it down. But now at the age of 93 and dying from cancer, which this article is from 2009, he's since died, probably caused by the atomic bombs that almost killed him twice, 
Mr. Yamaguchi has finally been awarded for recognition his life deserves. This week, the Nagasaki and Hiroshima governments recorded Mr. Yamaguchi as a double habakusha, acknowledging that he was exposed to both blasts that incinerated the cities in 1945. As far as we know, it's the first time that a dual exposure to atomic bombings has been entered into an A-bomb survivor's ID, officials said. Living out his final days in the rebuilt Nagasaki, where he resides with his daughter Toshiko, the old man is happy, is happy his tale is reaching people around the world. After I die, I want the next generation of Habakusha and the children after that to know what happened to us, he told the Independent in a telephone interview. Like many of the roughly 260,000 survivors of the atomic explosions, Mr. Yamaguchi suffered an agony for much of his life, as his daughter explains. Until I was about 12, he was wrapped in bandages for his skin wounds, and he went completely bald, says Toshiko, now, now 60. My mother was also soaked in black rain, the famously radioactive rain that fell after both bombings and was poisoned. We think she passed on that poison to us. Yamaguchi's children, like many second-generation Habakusha, have also been plagued by health problems. His son, Katsu Ochi, died of cancer in 2005, aged 59. His daughter, Naoko, has, in Toshiko's word, been sickly all her life. His wife died last year, aged 88, of kidney and liver cancer after a lifetime of illness. I suffer, too, from a terribly low white blood cell count, so I worry about what will happen to me, Toshiko adds. But his children's illnesses aside, Mr. Yamaguchi seemed determined to live his life as normally as possible. After recovering from his burns and radiation sickness, he returned to work as a ship engineer in the local port and rarely discussed what happened to him. Afterwards, he was fine. We hardly noticed he was a survivor, recalls Toshiko. Her father raised his family and declined to play any part in the anti-bomb activities that fill the lives of some survivors. Because he was so healthy, he thought it would have been unfair to people who were really sick. Mr. Yamaguchi must have watched the world outside his city with alarm. Six decades after his horrific experiences, the U.S. alone has 8,000 active or operational warheads, each carrying an average about 20 times the destructive power of Hiroshima. The once select nuclear club of America, Russia, China, France, and Britain has been swelled by new recruits, Israel, Pakistan, India, and probably North Korea. I think we know now, definitely North Korea. Even conservative Japanese politicians hint that they might one day need the bomb. I can't understand why the world cannot understand the agony of the nuclear bombs, he says, speaking through his daughters. How can they keep developing these weapons? Along with thousands of others, Mr. Yamaguchi applied for Habakusha status with Nagasaki when the government finally began to provide health assistance and later other benefits in 1957. His government-issued ID stated he was exposed to radiation only in Nagasaki, therefore neglecting his unique status as a double survivor, and he saw no need to draw attention to it. But as he got older, things changed. In his 80s, he finally wrote a book about his experiences and was invited to take part in a documentary called Twice Bombed, Twice Survived about the handful of double A-bomb victims. The film shows him weeping bitterly as he describes watching bloated corpses floating in the city's rivers and encountering the walking dead of Hiroshima whose melting flesh hung like giant gloves. Three years ago, the film was screened at the UN in New York where Mr. Yamaguchi, by then wheelchair-bound, pleaded with the audience to fight for the abolition of nuclear weapons. As a double atomic bomb survivor, I experienced the bomb twice, and I sincerely hope there will not be a third, he said. His friends, including local journalist Masami Maeshita, told him he should make his status official. I've never met anyone like him, says Mr. Maeshita. There are other people who suffered in both bombings, but nobody I know who was so close to the blasts. To survive once is agony, twice is a miracle, but he has never made a big deal about it. 
Today, Mr. Yamaguchi believes that God planted a path for him. It was my destiny that I experienced this twice, and I am still alive to convey what happened, he said. So in January this year, he filed a request for double recognition. Very late in life then, and much to his surprise, the retired engineer finds himself making a small piece of history and seeing his face in newspapers and on TV across the world. Some have called Mr. Yamaguchi the luckiest man alive, but his daughter says he rarely considers such things. He laughs when asked why he was so lucky, says Toshiko. He just doesn't know. What a story. Yeah, I've, I've never heard anything. I didn't even, yeah, it never I, even occurred to me that there could be somebody that had been in both cities, much less yeah. multiple people. Well, from that article, it says that, yeah, there, there, there might have been other people that were as well. So that, that's, that's, that's crazy. I can't even imagine. Well, you, you get out of that horror and you finally get home to where, you know, your family and everybody is and then it's like... Then all of a sudden, yeah. I mean, what, what, what a stroke of like really just like bad or, or, or maybe even good luck because dude survived, you know. He lived, he lived into his 90s. Into so. his 90s. He did finally <laughs> die of stomach cancer. So maybe, you know, he was eventually a victim. But it's like, I always thought it was interesting. Like, could you imagine being that dude? It's just like, nothing would scare you after that. <laughs> it's, it's like, really? You're going to come after me with a gun? I'd survive two nuclear explosions. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's, it's no laughing matter, but it, it, it is, it is interesting. And, uh, you know, the 70 years ago, the world crossed the threshold. And thank God that one of those hasn't been fired off in anger yet. Right. That's all all I can say. Uh, just, Rob, is there anything you wanted to add about tonight? Or I know you're about to pass out. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I just want to thank Walter Bosley again for coming on yes, again. Absolutely. And I wanted to make the announcement, guys, that uh, we have finalized our plans. And Rob and I and a couple other people, we will be at the Paradigm Symposium at the beginning in Minneapolis at the beginning of October and you know Lord willing hopefully nothing goes wrong and we get there <laughs> so uh, it is a long ride for us from Nashville and Minneapolis but uh, if anybody yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be great we're gonna be hanging out with Scotty Roberts and Rocky Stucci and John Ward all our friends up there and uh, so a lot of people that have been on this show have uh, have also are also going to be presenting and uh, are going to be hanging out there as well. And people that are going to be on this show. So looking really real forward to that, guys. Um, don't forget, you know, download conspiranormal.podomatic.com. Also, we're on the Fringe Radio Network and last but not least, IPBN. And next week, we're going to have Marie D. Jones come in and we're going to talk about her new book mind wars that she wrote with larry flaxman and maybe we can get him on as well to talk to her about that but uh we're going to be talking about mind control and uh, hopefully we'll have luke here to to lend his mirth (laughs) (laughs) to the proceeding when he's after he's done worshiping satan at the uh, Marilyn manson concert so uh thank you guys for listening we're going to call it a night and uh tune in next week for Conspiranormal!
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.